So my father and I definitely have a typical Asian relationship, very low on affection, high on criticism. My father got really sick a few years ago. He nearly died and he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And since then, I've tried to be very mindful of kind of building a bridge between him and myself. The moment that stands out for me um, recently with my father was when I ran my first marathon, the Chicago Marathon in 2016. My father was so excited for me and he got up at the crack of dawn, took a bus with a bunch of Korean people he didn't even know and waited for me at the 20 mile marker. I probably didn't even get there until around 9.30 in the morning, so he was sitting there in the cold for three and a half hours holding a water bottle. So I get to mile 20 and finally I see my dad and he sees me and he gets up and he starts running with me and he's holding this water bottle and he says, Joanne, do you want me to run with you? Do you want me to run with you? I swear to God. That still makes me cry. That was a TikTok I posted almost two years ago about my most memorable moment from my very first marathon. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host of the podcast. So this week, I thought we'd talk about something that I could probably talk about for hours on end, and of course, that's running. But I wanted to frame it as a discussion about finding confidence. One of the most frequent questions I get asked, especially by younger folks on TikTok, is how do I gain more confidence? And for me, running has been such an integral part of that journey. We're also going to do something a little bit different for the Ask Joanne segment of this week's episode. For those of you who don't know, I have been an avid follower of the Alex Jones trial, a trial that has literally taken over the American consciousness over the past week. And as a lawyer, it's been super fascinating to me to see how this trial has played out. I have engaged largely with my Twitter community, which is composed of many, many, many lawyers who are also sort of geeking out over what's happening. So we're going to do a little bit of a Q&A. I solicited questions from my Twitter community, and hopefully many of them are answered here to some degree of satisfaction. But also for those of you who aren't lawyers, who are just curious about this case that has completely taken over our television screens over the past week. So without further ado, let's get into it. A friend of mine once told me, confidence is a hard-earned thing. I didn't understand exactly what she meant and didn't have time to ask her to elaborate, but for some reason, the statement always stuck with me. Confidence is a hard-earned thing. Confidence is defined as a, quote, feeling of self-assurance arising from one's appreciation of one's own abilities or qualities. Thus, the opposite of confidence would be the lack of self-assurance, presumably arising from that same evaluation of one's own abilities or qualities, or I guess lack thereof. Can you think of a time in your life when you wish you had more confidence? 
I always think of my fear of cocktail parties or networking hours, those vile structureless things that require you to quote, mingle with people you don't know. Or the last time someone, i.e. my husband, asked me to dance, which is honestly one of my worst nightmares. And of course, the torture that was the first three years of being a lawyer, when I felt like the most incompetent person on the planet, barely one step ahead of certain malpractice. The imposter syndrome that enshrouded my entire 17-year career as an attorney, that always had me wondering, when's the penny going to drop so that everyone realizes I'm actually a shitty lawyer, was also a symptom of my lack of confidence. In these cases, it's often not the lack of one's appreciation of one's own abilities or qualities, but a misappreciation of those things that results in a distorted sense of self. In fact, if you're anything like me, you're obsessively analyzing your abilities and qualities over and over again, hoping that this time you'll be able to say, yeah, I'm the shit, but instead coming to the same depressing conclusion that prevents you from being the bell of the ball or taking hold of your Perry Mason moment. Sometimes though, a failure in confidence can cause far more harm than keeping you off the dance floor. It can prevent you from going after a promotion at work or leaving for a better job altogether. It can keep you from meeting new people, those who might inject laughter and love into your life. It can keep you stuck in unhealthy relationships, even when you know they're bad for you. It can trick you into depending on substances like drugs, alcohol, or even toxic foods as a substitute for real joy. It's no wonder that one of the more frequent questions I get asked is, how can I be more confident? This was a big question of my own for many years. And of all the things I could have tried to help me earn that elusive self-assurance, running, an activity I hated more than a dental appointment, was the last thing on my list. Growing up, other than the occasional game of tag, I had almost no willing interaction with running either as a spectator or a participant. By the time I was in sixth grade, I hated running so much that the mere idea of jogging for any extended period of time caused full-blown panic attacks. One year, when I was 12 years old, I was literally carted off by a team of paramedics because I passed out cold in fourth period woodshop class when I learned we would be running for a whole 20 minutes during gym class later that day. I was, from that point on, the girl who fainted in woodshop, which was totally okay with me if it meant I didn't have to run for 20 minutes. To my deep disappointment, we ended up having to do the same thing again in gym class two days later, and that time I didn't faint. So it was with not a little resentful disbelief that I would listen to people carry on about how much they loved running. Such people were either lying or batshit. How could any rational human being voluntarily subject their bodies to bone damage, muscle cramps, heart palpitation, blisters, and the mind-numbing boredom that attended the most repetitive activity that God ever created? It would be one thing to run for some purpose, like because something was chasing you, but to do so for fun? Yeah, no. Life has a strange way, though, of shifting one's loyalties or disloyalties. 
More than two decades after that 20-minute run around the track of Wilmette Junior High School, I would find myself huffing and puffing towards the lighthouse at the end of the pier on North Avenue Beach in Chicago. Recently divorced, I moved into a small apartment in the city, right next to Lake Michigan. I'd gained about 40 pounds during the divorce and figured I really had no excuse since I now lived a stone's throw away from 18 miles of uninterrupted running path along one of the most pristine bodies of water in the world. Plus, running is cheap. No gym membership, no expensive equipment. All I needed was a pair of sneakers. I didn't even need a watch. I wasn't timing myself and I didn't have any particular distance in mind. The only metrics I cared about were how tired I was and my ego. In 2013, my first run consisted of three quarters of a mile along the lakefront path. I subsequently mapped it out on my phone. And I was so out of breath, I had to stop and rest for a few minutes at the turnaround point. But I came back to my apartment, got into the elevator, cheeks flush, heart still thumping, and I was proud of myself. Proud of myself for doing something I hated for my health. I stuck to it, running a few times a week to that same turnaround point. And eventually, 0.75 miles turned into a full mile, then two, three, and even four. It was around this time, when a four-mile run was turning into my weekly long run, that I met Anthony. I met Anthony through OkCupid, a popular online dating website. There were two things that jumped out to me on his OKC profile. First, the fact that he played classical piano and the picture of him running shirtless in a half marathon. I would soon discover that he was an avid runner and that he came from a family of more than avid runners. I met Anthony's parents for the first time in October 2014 after the Chicago Marathon. Anthony and his brother David had just completed the big race and we headed over to a popular South Loop pizza joint, Lowen Santos, to celebrate. We pushed three tables together to accommodate family and friends, including Anthony's cousin Laura, who also ran the marathon. If I recall correctly, it was her ninth marathon. Despite being terrifically nervous about meeting Anthony's family for the first time, Laura set me instantly at ease by telling me funny stories about running with her dad. If you're a runner, you may have heard of him, Hal Higdon. A few minutes later, though, the old heart rate got thumping again when Anthony's father, Robert, and mother, Judy, walked through the glass door. I remember a handful of things from that first meeting with Anthony's parents, and you all know how many of you can remember with scintillating detail your first meeting with your partner's parents. <laughs> the first thing I remember is how kind Judy was to me, as if she could actually hear my heart racing and was doing everything in her power to soothe me in a way I was so unused to with just about every other person I'd known, including her own son. Judy, for those of you who understand the Korean word nunchi, she has very fast nunchi. I'm very blessed to have her as my mother-in-law. Judy sat next to me and expertly guided our conversation with well-timed questions, all of which were easy to answer and designed to get me talking to guard against awkward silences and stress. Second, 
I remember Robert's eyes, shaped just like Anthony's, kind but penetrating. He didn't speak with me very much except when I asked him about running. I learned that Anthony's father was also a longtime runner. He'd been crossing the finish lines of marathons since his early 30s. Though always athletic, he was both a tennis and soccer player, it wasn't until he immigrated to the United States from Rome that he added running to his repertoire. It wasn't surprising then that his boys, particularly his older son, followed in his footsteps, literally. He would teach his sons all about picking up their feet, wrestling with the Chicago wind, and training through the Chicago winters. I guess it was only a matter of time then before my runs along the lakefront would lead me to a race. I always like to say that my very first marathon was the one that Anthony and his brother David ran back in 2014. While I didn't run it myself, I showed up and handed water bottles to Anthony at pre-planned locations along the winding 26.2 mile course. I'd never been to a marathon before and seeing 40,000 people line up to engage in this collective session of self-inflicted torture was indeed a sight to behold. Although 80% of me was still of the, these people are crazy mentality, there was a not insubstantial part of me that was intrigued. One of the most amazing things you'll see at virtually any marathon is the number of participants who look nothing like what you see in your head when you hear the word marathon runner. Not everyone running a marathon is going to have long muscular legs sprouting out of lean sinewy frames, i.e. like my husband. In fact, after snapping photos of the wheelchair racer zipping down wells, I was astonished to see numerous amputees on the course, not just keeping up, but pushing the pace on their prosthetics. Not everyone is going to be loping through the streets at a seven minute mile pace. There were hundreds of, quote, runners who stopped to walk as early as mile three, which was my first handoff spot for Anthony's water. You also don't need to be rich to run a marathon. Training entails a pair of running shoes and a stopwatch. My law firm partner, Jeff, he's been running marathons for decades and has never upgraded from his old school $5 stopwatch without a GPS. While registration fees for some of the world marathon majors like Chicago, New York City, Boston, London, Berlin, or Tokyo can get pricey and might require travel, you can often find local marathons for less than 50 bucks. Accordingly, the race pool was populated with athletes of all different levels of fitness, ability, and experience. Witnessing the sheer diversity of runners at that very first marathon back in 2014, it made me think that becoming one of them wasn't such an impossibility after all. I ran my very first real race, a turkey trot 5K, just a few weeks after that marathon. And it was like getting a tattoo. I was instantly addicted. I signed up for the Shamrock Shuffle a few months later, then the Soldier Field 10 miler, and before I knew it, a half marathon. I liked racing. You not only get a really cool medal at the end, there was something about getting home after crossing the finish line, particularly if Anthony ran the same race, knowing that you'd just done something really hard, painful, and entirely voluntary. I'd never done anything quite like it, and that feeling 
was exhilarating. Now, before we get to my first time actually running a marathon, I don't want to gloss over the evolution of my fitness. I cannot emphasize enough just how hard it was for me to complete that very first quote run along the lakefront path, the 0.75 miles that had to be broken up into two parts. That inaugural run took place in 2013. By the summer of 2014, I was running maybe 10 miles a week. By the time I assumed my role as water girlfriend at the 2014 Chicago Marathon, the longest distance I'd ever run was seven miles. I can still remember just how proud I was after completing my first 9.63 mile run just a few weeks after Anthony ran (laughs) 26.2. I wanted to run from my apartment all the way to one of my favorite cafes in Hyde Park, Medici's, where my law school BFF used to pick up croissant sandwiches for our study group. Anthony met me there and took a picture of me with my latte, my face still flush with that hallmark post-run glow, and posted it on Facebook, telling me authoritatively that it was totally okay to round up and say I'd run 10 miles. At some point, I realized that running wasn't just a tool to help me lose some weight or stay in shape. It definitely brought me and Anthony closer. We shopped for my first pair of running shoes together. We went to pick up the racing bib for my very first race together and made out on the escalator on the way back. When I ran my first six mile run, he said, babe, that's a real run. You're a serious runner when you're regularly running six milers. A comment he likely can't remember, but one that burrowed into the deepest parts of me. In December 2014, we broke up for a month. I'll save that story for another podcast. It was horrible and depressing and not a little traumatizing, having been in only two relationships prior to Anthony. I'd never been dumped before. Let's just say my running experienced a bit of a growth spurt during that month, partly because I was depressed and didn't know what else to do to take my mind off of him, but mostly, I'll be honest, to get his attention. I was posting all my runs on Facebook at that time, and I knew he'd be impressed if I kept up running even after he sort of exited my romantic life. Sure enough, the day I posted that I'd run an actual 10 miles, not rounded up, he texted me immediately. You're incredible. Do you have any idea what that does to a girl? To hear you're incredible from the guy who just dumped you a few days ago, even though you literally begged him to stick around? It's a strange feeling, but not a bad one. And it motivated me to run more, run longer. Well, at least as far and as long as my body could reasonably undertake when it was subsisting exclusively on wine and chocolate truffles. It was a bad time. Long story short, again, another podcast, we got back together in January 2015. I made partner a few days after we got back together. He gifted me with a Garmin. Anthony wasn't my only pseudo running coach at that time. Anthony's father, Robert, loved to talk about running with anyone, including his son's girlfriend. I will never, ever forget the sight of six jumbo-sized blueberry muffins sitting on a cooling rack on Robert's kitchen counter when I came back from the Shamrock Shuffle. The finish line was very close to Anthony's parents' condo in the city. He baked them for the runners, me, Anthony, and David, and to this day, I think those muffins had a lot to do with my subsequent fascination with cooking and baking, which, as you no doubt know, totally changed my whole life. After growing seriously ill in 2008 with a host of autoimmune issues, Robert could no longer run himself. 
but he was enough of a runner to know just how life-affirming a rack of blueberry muffins would be after running an all-out 8K. I am an unapologetic people pleaser. I derive serious amounts of serotonin when adults are pleased with me. I was thus more determined than ever to get Anthony's parents to fall in love with me. As soon as we went to his parents' house, which was almost every day, I went straight to the living room couch where Robert often liked to sit while propping his leg up for better circulation. Robert loved to talk about three things, running, Rome, and cooking. It is thus not surprising, I guess, that I am now a long-distance runner who's traveled to Rome five times, even getting married there, and has a career in food. Unfortunately, Robert passed away in late 2015, so he never lived to see just how much of an influence our couch chats had on my future. Shortly after he died, I quietly, silently, decided that one day I would run a marathon. But first, I'd have to run a half marathon to make sure I didn't die in the attempt like the first dude who ran a marathon. I thus registered for the Naperville half marathon scheduled to take place in the fall of 2016. I downloaded Hal Higdon's half marathon for novices training app because, you know, he's basically family. I liked his app. He had a section in the training materials where he doled out non-running tips like smile at the people on the course, it'll make running more fun, or don't overdo it on strength training because it can get in the way of your running, or running in the rain sucks. I'm paraphrasing. My entire family came out to see me run the half marathon. The race went smoothly, thanks to Hal's training, with the exception of that moment at mile 10 when my right glute went numb and I had to walk for a bit. I ran right into my mother's arms at the finish, and as she held me, all I could think was, I'm going to run a fucking marathon. As I did with the half marathon, I downloaded Hal's Marathon for Novices app and stuck to it pretty assiduously for the entire 18-week training program. That's right, in case you've never run a marathon before, the training generally takes 18 weeks if you're a beginner. The first long run is six miles. Your last long run is 20 miles, by which time six miles is often your short run. The training program is designed to condition your legs, glutes, back, arms, and shoulders to endure all 26.2 miles of the race. Very few people on earth can just roll out of bed and run a full marathon. There are people who can do that, but it's very, very few. Therefore, you meet your body where it's at, trusting that the process of consistent time on your feet will eventually enable your body to do what it most certainly could not just a few months before. It is always so fascinating how my brain totally blanches at the thought of running six whole miles at the beginning of a training program and then sighs in total relief months later that all I have to do is run six miles. This happens with every single training block and it's just so insane to me. Some people think they can just skip the training program and run a whole marathon. Apparently, one of Anthony's cousins, a very fit young man in his 20s, largely skipped most of the training but towed the line of the marathon anyway. He started out at a relatively brisk 10-minute mile pace thinking he'd cruise his way to a four-hour finish. Because, you know, for someone who's super fit, 10-minute miles are pretty slow. Now, he was fit, so he did finish but he ended up walking most of it after mile 18. 
I, on the other hand, dutifully followed Hal's training schedule and was thus able to run the whole 26.2 miles, finishing way ahead of Anthony's much younger cousin. Yes, I did finish that marathon, and it was hard and scary and intimidating and painful, especially after mile 18. But it was also fun and exciting and extraordinary and emotional. If you've read my book, then you'll know that the absolute most memorable thing about that race wasn't crossing the finish line after turning the corner onto Columbus or running with Anthony through Chinatown or the happy mariachi band in Pilsen. It was right at around mile 20 when I saw my father. My father was so excited to watch me run the marathon, which I thought was really odd, given that he'd never been excited to see me do anything. He generally tends to fall asleep at things like recitals, graduations, even when I got sworn into the bar. And because my mother was in Korea and thus unable to chaperone him, I was a little reluctant to have him there. I remember telling him, Daddy, you don't need to come. Like, it's really going to be boring and cold. The marathon is in October. But he bowled right over me. Oh, sure, sure, I be there. How long you think you're going to take? Amma assured me he would be all right. She'd arranged to have him join a local Korean community group that was taking a bus down to the city and setting up a cheering station on 18th Street just before the 20-mile marker. The bus picked my dad up at 6 in the morning. He parked himself on a lawn chair at around 6.45 a.m., when it was still in the mid-50s, he was going to see his daughter run a marathon. I hadn't even gotten to the start line yet. I didn't start running until 8.17 a.m., more than an hour and a half after my dad started waiting for me. It would be nearly four hours before I finally got to that point on the course. By that time, Anthony had prepped him and Daddy was standing with a bottle of water in his hands, craning his head, looking for my face among a sea of sweaty faces. And when he finally saw me, his face nearly split in half from his smile. He started running with me, my 72-year-old dad with a bottled water in his hands, shouting, Joanne, should I run with you? Can I run with you? Needless to say, I was practically sobbing as I turned the corner onto Halstead, my father still cheering behind me. My father literally jumped up and down when I passed the bar exam. He slapped me on the back when I got a full-time job at the firm, and he raised a glass and congratulated me when I finally got a divorce. But I honestly don't think I've ever seen my dad more proud of me than on the day he waited nearly six hours to hand me a bottle of water at mile 20 of the Chicago Marathon. Marathon training doesn't just change your physical body. It changes your brain. And I'm not just talking about touchy-feely guru stuff. A recent study found that marathon training improves neuroplasticity, i.e. the neuron's ability to compensate for injury and disease and to adjust their activities in response to new situations or to changes in their environment. One 2018 study suggests that 30 minutes of running can even help to fight off anxiety and depression. 
you hear fitness influencers talk about mental toughness all the time. One of my favorite YouTubers, Sage Canada, whom I watched on YouTube obsessively, like obsessively in preparation for my first marathon, has entire videos on just the mental aspects of running a marathon. The brain is a muscle. And therefore, if you challenge it enough, but not too much, it'll get stronger, just like every other muscle in your body. There are really three things that require mental toughness when you're running long distance. Number one, overcoming the brain's disbelief that you can complete the assigned task, whether it's to run six miles or 26 miles, especially if you've never done it before. This disbelief is reinforced by your body's inherent inertia, that part of you that would rather sit on the couch and binge watch the bear while eating Pringles. Second, the sheer boredom of running, especially if you're on a treadmill or running by yourself. Depending on the pace you train at, which will almost always be significantly slower than you think, you'll be out there anywhere from one to four hours. That's a very long time to be doing the exact same activity without interruption. And number three, coping with the pain. And by pain, I do mean physical discomfort. Some long runs will be pain-free and easy, especially if you're already really fit and run a lot. But there will always be a long run, or 18 of them, that causes pain in your feet, toes, knees, ankles, shoulders, back, etc. And on the day of the marathon, if you're pushing yourself to the limit, at some point, you will hurt. What's the first thing you do right after crossing the finish line of a marathon? You stuff your face with free potato chips, the sodium and the carbs. Okay, the second thing, you decide on your next marathon. While sauntering back towards Anthony's parents' house, again, the finish line was a few blocks from their house, I decided to register for the Flying Pig Marathon in May 2018. Upon completing that one, I signed up again for the Chicago Marathon in October 2018. Now, 2018 was a very busy year for me. I was chief litigation counsel in a massive Ponzi scheme case, and I was planning my wedding, which was set for July in Rome. It was maybe not the best year to attempt back-to-back -back marathons. I had about a three-week break between sprinting across the finish line of the Flying Pig to starting all over again with a new block of training for Chicago, while also preparing for my wedding in Italy. Still, I enjoy the regimented nature of marathon training, and I bet if there are runners out there listening to this right now, you know what I'm talking about. Five times a week, I started the day with a run, making those two off days all the more precious. Although sacrificing my weekends for long runs and recovery could grow taxing, the slow build over 18-week training blocks allowed running to slip into my daily routine. Is that six miles to 20 miles, how it crept up on me until it became as much a part of my life as brushing my teeth or doing my time entries. Thus, even though most normal people take a short hiatus from training on their wedding day and honeymoon, I did not. I ran 12.87 kilometers, which equals eight miles, on a rickety old treadmill in the gym of our hotel on the morning of our wedding. During our honeymoon, I was determined to complete all of the training runs my coach scheduled for me throughout the craggy hills of Sardinia, the cobbled streets of Turin, and on the slightly scary hotel treadmill, if necessary. But after nearly falling to my death while running up and down the hills of Sardinia on day two of our honeymoon, 
I had a heart-to-heart with my coach and determined that we'd defer Chicago and sign up for Indie Monumental, which took place a month later in November. This would give me a little breathing space while Anthony and I enjoyed the remainder of our trip. The wedding and honeymoon were a dream in many ways. Anthony and I, mostly I, planned the perfect wedding. A small group of only 35 or so guests, consisting of family and our close friends. We held our ceremony in a deconsecrated church in Rome because I was a divorcee. We could not get married in an actual church. And our wedding reception on the rooftop of the Minerva Hotel. Our dinner menu was entirely vegan, right down to the Chantilly cream wedding cake, which was to this day the best wedding cake I've ever had in my life. Vegan, non-vegan. I actually had two slices. How many of you can remember the last time you willingly ate two slices of wedding cake? That's how good my wedding cake was. After a couple more days in Rome, we set out for the crystal blue shores of Sardinia, one of the most beautiful places in the world, followed by a fun few days in Torino, touted as the vegetarian capital of Europe, wonderful vegan restaurants in Torino, and then returned to Rome to finish off our honeymoon along the sultry streets of Trastevere, which is truly one of the most romantic places in the world you should visit if you can. There was, however, a small blemish on our nuptials. My ex-husband. Believe it or not, I had to entertain multiple phone calls from my ex while on my freaking honeymoon. And as you might guess, it was the opposite of fun or romantic. As part of our divorce settlement, my ex got to keep the house. But a few weeks after my alimony payments started to shrink in accordance with the graduated payment schedule and our agreement, he could no longer afford the mortgage. And guess what? My name and only my name was on the mortgage. He was required to transfer the mortgage into his name only, but of course failed to do so. Selling the house would be nearly impossible. We had bought it in 2007, just before the market crashed. Having to deal with this nightmare while training for marathons, working around the clock and preparing for a wedding, it was grating. Having to tell my new husband, sorry, babe, I have to take this call from your predecessor, while checking out all the cute little cafes in Sardinia, it was unbearable. The saga continued even after we got back to Chicago. I had to hire my own lawyer, have multiple tense conversations with my ex-husband, pour money down the drain to shore up his finances and my credit. I remember hanging up the phone after yet another heated call with my ex one afternoon in my bedroom, my body bending to some invisible weight across my shoulders, bringing my fists up to the sides of my head as if I could somehow lobotomize myself, completely erase that part of my brain that had any memory of my first marriage and its aftermath. In so many ways, it was like being thrown into the pit of my divorce all over again, something I'd worked so hard to climb out of the first time, only to have him waiting there for me when I got out. I crumbled into my bed, started sobbing into the comforter, I didn't see a way out. Despite moving out, getting remarried, and finally finding some measure of healing, it seemed I would be stuck paying for the biggest mistake of my life forever. The words, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, circled my head like a carousel as I towed the edge of my despair. Then, somewhere, a guttural but still familiar voice filled the room. You've run a fucking marathon. You got this. 
So every week I take questions submitted by listeners or newsletter readers and give them my sort of Joanne perspective, if you will. I call it Ask Joanne. But this week, I thought it might be interesting to answer some questions you might have on something I've personally found totally riveting, and that is the Alex Jones trial. For those of you who don't know, Alex Jones is the creator of a website called InfoWars, funded by the company Free Speech Systems, LLC. That's his company. Among many conspiracy theories, InfoWars has propagated the notion that the Sandy Hook tragedy was a scam constructed by the government and anti-gun lobbyists that murdered children and surviving parents are all paid actors. Jones's more rabid fans began to stalk the Sandy Hook parents, who they believe to be actors thanks to Jones, publishing their known whereabouts and addresses so they could be harassed with death threats for the rest of their lives. Not surprisingly, the Sandy Hook parents hired a lawyer and sued Jones and his company Free Speech, which I will collectively call Jones, for, among other things, defamation. Last week in a Texas state court, the parties concluded their trial and the jury awarded two Sandy Hook parents around $45 million in punitive damages and $4.1 million in compensatory damages for a total damages award of around $49.1 million. Now, I've watched a lot of trials in my day, and even putting to one side the total catharsis of watching Karma do her thing with the likes of Alex Jones... Some of the things that occurred during this trial were absolutely jaw-dropping. So here are a few highlights along with a brief legal analysis of each. So first of all, was Alex Jones already found guilty of defamation? All of the lawsuits filed against Alex Jones are civil proceedings, and therefore his, quote, guilt is not on trial. There's no guilt or innocence in a civil case. It's liable or not liable. That said, he was already found liable for defamation. Now, what's interesting here is that his liability was not determined in typical fashion by a jury trial. Instead, because he refused to make certain obligatory disclosures under the applicable rules of discovery, the judge entered default judgments against him. In other words, no jury ever said, yep, he defamed plaintiffs. Rather, it was Alex Jones's own stubborn refusal to comply with court orders that permitted a judge to enter a judgment of liability against him and his company without Jones ever presenting a defense. What we saw last week was only the damages portion of the trial, i.e. the phase typically after liability has been determined. Word to the wise, your ego is never, ever, ever worth a default judgment. How many lawsuits are there? Well, Sandy Hook parents filed lawsuits against Jones in three separate proceedings pending in Texas and Connecticut. Default judgments were entered against Jones in all of them because, again, he failed to produce certain documents, financial documents, that the court required. However, only one made it to trial for damages, which is the one we saw last week. Why? Because Jones's company filed for protection under Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code before the others could proceed. The Bankruptcy Code has this thing called an automatic stay, which basically hits the pause button on any pending litigation against the debtor, in this case, Jones's company. However, 
The one that we saw last week was permitted to proceed as an exception to that general rule. Plaintiffs in the other lawsuits are, however, trying to obtain an exception for their lawsuits as well. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Jones was warned repeatedly by the judge not to lie. But the ultimate pants on fire moment occurred on the last day of trial when plaintiff's counsel disclosed that Jones's lawyer accidentally turned over all of Jones's text messages in the past two years to him. Prior to trial, Jones repeatedly testified under oath during deposition that he had no text messages related to Sandy Hook. Okay, whatever. It thus came as no surprise to basically everyone that a review of Jones's inadvertently produced text messages revealed many, many, many text messages about Sandy Hook. Jones himself called this the other side's Perry Mason moment. Wait, wait, wait. Accidentally turned over? Yes. According to a motion filed by Jones's lawyer, their paralegal inadvertently, accidentally, oh, oops, sent the plaintiff's counsel a number of files and folders that Jones never intended to produce. It appears that many of these documents, i.e. the text messages related to Sandy Hook, should have been produced anyway, but for the fact that Jones allegedly lied about having them. However, it also appears that there were probably a bunch of files that were either irrelevant or, more importantly, protected under the attorney-client privilege. Now, this happens a lot more often than you probably think. I mean, how many times has someone in your office hit the reply all when it was clearly meant to be reply to one? (laughs) A lot. Inadvertent productions happen about as frequently as that. Usually in this situation, the side that made the production by accident will send an email to the other side saying, oops, my bad, can you just hit delete? Because the parties have an agreed discovery order that covers how to handle just these kinds of situations in advance. Because everyone knows it happens often. So a lot of times parties get together in advance and say, hey, we know it's probably going to happen. So if it does, we agree that this is what we're going to do in that situation. In this case, plaintiff's lawyer immediately alerted Jones's lawyer saying, dude, I think you sent me a bunch of emails like that you weren't supposed to. And Jones's lawyer immediately responded with an email saying, oh, thanks, please disregard. So how come plaintiff's lawyer didn't hit delete? Because here, the parties didn't have an agreed discovery protocol order, and therefore it defaulted to the existing state rules that apply in these situations. Under Texas law, when a party makes an inadvertent disclosure, it has to notify the other side and redo the entire production correctly. This means Jones was supposed to produce a privilege log, a spreadsheet that identifies everything Jones is not producing, even if it's relevant to the lawsuit because it's covered under the privilege. And for those of you who don't know, the privilege protects conversations and communications related to the giving of legal advice. A lot of times in smaller cases, the parties, they don't really do privilege logs because privilege disputes are annoying, expensive, and usually result in nothing. Here, however, plaintiff's lawyer already had access to the documents that were purportedly privileged, and therefore, Jones's lawyer would have had to produce a privilege log to claw them back. The rule requires him to do so within 10 days of the inadvertent disclosure. He didn't probably because he was lazy and didn't want to do a full-blown privlog and thought that plaintiff's lawyer would simply do him the courtesy of disregarding. 
Gambling on ordinary legal courtesies was idiotic in a case charged with Alex Jones level toxicity. Then does Alex Jones go to jail for perjury? Probably not. The judge had multiple opportunities to hold Jones in contempt during the trial and always chose not to do so. Moreover, perjury prosecutions are exceedingly rare in Texas. And in this case, lying under oath in a deposition, it's just not as egregious, it's only a misdemeanor, as lying in court, which is a felony. A perjury case would require a trial on whether Jones knew his statement under oath in that deposition was untrue at that time which would be really hard and expensive to prove and may not be worth it. Now, here's the big ticket question. Will the $49 million judgment against Jones stick? Probably not. Now, just to recap, in case you missed it, plaintiffs asked for $150 million in their complaint against Jones. The jury awarded $4.1 million in, quote, compensatory damages and $45 million in punitive damages. And just as a little bit of background, compensatory damages, as the name suggests, is designed to compensate you for your injury. Punitive damages, on the other hand, are meant to deter and punish someone for bad conduct. So they're two different categories of damages. Under Texas law, punitive damages can never exceed twice the amount of, quote, economic damages, i.e., the amount plaintiffs had to pay out of pocket due to defendant's conduct, plus $750,000 at most. So you'd think then it's two times $4.1 million plus $750,000 plus the $4.1 million already awarded in compensatory damages, which equals about $13.05 million, way less than the $49.1 million that the jury awarded, but it gets worse. In this case, it's still a little unclear whether the $4.1 million the jury awarded in compensatory damages, remember the damages that are designed to compensate the plaintiffs for the defendant's conduct, can be fairly classified as economic damages, which is yet another subcategory of compensatory damages. If, as many suspect, the jury awarded $4.1 million for pain and suffering, and not, for example, the amount of money plaintiffs expended to pay for therapy, relocate every time stalkers found them, like literal out-of-pocket costs that they could prove with like receipts, then punitive damages would be twice the amount of $0, plus at most $750,000, leading to total damages in the amount of $4.85 million, which, let's all be honest here, pretty much is a slap on the wrist for a man worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, do plaintiffs have any way of keeping the entire judgment? Sad to say, probably not. The statute, it's not discretionary, it's mandatory. It mandates the application of the cap. While some have argued that doing so would be unconstitutional, the Texas Supreme Court has basically indicated that it has no problem with the constitutionality of Texas's statutory cap, calling it, quote, automatic. There is one interesting exception to the cap. Under Texas law, there is no cap on punitive damages when the case involves the fraudulent concealment of documents. Huzzah! The text messages, you might say. But no. 
The Texas Supreme Court has stated, albeit in dicta, that the exception to a statutory cap on damages needs to be pled. It needs to be in the complaint. So plaintiffs had to have made an issue about fraudulent concealment of those text messages all the way in the beginning of the case, or at least should have amended their complaint to include for it as soon as they knew. But of course, they didn't know until the case had already been submitted to the jury. As far as I know, plaintiffs did not plead an exception to the statutory cap, and therefore, I think they're out of luck. But what about the other two trials? Well, recall, they're still stayed by virtue of the Jones bankruptcy. Assuming, however, the stay is lifted to allow them to proceed, one of them is in Texas and another is in Connecticut. Both states have rather limiting statutory caps. It's possible that counsel for plaintiffs in those two cases will have learned a thing or two from the outcome of this most recent case and will therefore be much more mindful on crafting a damages case and providing thoughtful jury instructions. So they can't be explicit. The rules prevent parties from alerting juries to a cap before they head into deliberations. Well, what happens now that Jones has filed for bankruptcy? Well, in addition to getting a stay on any pending litigation with specific bankruptcy court-sanctioned exceptions like the most recent trial, Chapter 11 would require judgment creditors, like the plaintiffs who just won a judgment, to file a proof of claim in the bankruptcy case, meaning that plaintiffs would likely only receive a fraction of what would almost certainly be a reduced judgment to begin with. Worse yet, Jones would be able to start all over with a clean slate as if nothing happened. However, it is very possible that the bankruptcy case might end up getting dismissed, kind of like the one filed by the NRA for a host of reasons, the biggest one being that Jones filed the bankruptcy petition in bad faith. Not only have there been numerous allegations that he siphoned funds from his company so that judgment creditors like plaintiffs would be unable to have access to them, all of which will come out in bankruptcy court and then clawed back for the benefit of creditors, he filed the case in the middle of trial. Moreover, given Jones's track record for lying, which we've now all seen, I would not be surprised if the financial disclosures he's required to make in bankruptcy, truly a nightmare for someone who's willing to take a default judgment rather than produce a much lighter version of those disclosures in the defamation cases, are filled with inaccuracies and redactions, all of which will land him in hot water with the U.S. trustee's office, which, by the way, is an arm of the DOJ, which, by the way, is very interested in Jones's text messages and potential involvement with the January 6th riots. All right, that's a wrap of this slightly random Ask Joanne legal version. Next week, we will resume taking reader listener questions. So hit the Ask Joanne link in the show notes below. All right, we've got updates and random notes. First of all, I'm going to start with a giveaway alert in case you missed it. One of Instagram's most talented and beloved plant-based creators, Dr. Sheil Shukla, published a beautiful new cookbook called Plant-Based India. I was lucky enough to receive an early look at the book, and I am not joking. I literally want to cook every single recipe in this book. I mean, Everything looks mouthwatering. I love Indian cuisine. And for those of you who don't know, Dr. Shukla is a board certified physician and brings both his medical knowledge and cultural cuisine to not only his kitchen, 
but also yours. I'm so excited about this book and I'm going to be giving a copy away to one lucky reader or listener. Sign up is in the show notes below. Definitely check it out. Even if you don't win the copy that I'm giving away, I'm telling you, you all should have this book in your kitchens. It's gorgeous. Even my husband who doesn't know a thing, well, he knows a little thing about cooking was like, wow, these look incredible. What I'm watching, okay, I finally gave in and we watched the entire season of The Bear and it was so, so good. It totally did not disappoint. I can completely understand why now that <laughs> Ritual watched the entire thing in one sitting. They're really short episodes, but they're totally addictive. However, just a heads up, there are quite a few non-vegan scenes in this show, so there might be parts you need to cover your eyes for. Otherwise, the writing is excellent, the acting superb, and many, many of the recipes are eminently veganizable. Look for it on a meal planner near you. For Chicagoans, it is a love letter to your home. It made me miss Chicago quite a lot. My favorite KV Beauty product alert. As I mentioned last week, my newfound hobby is watching for fun kitchen gadgets and beauty products on my favorite Korean dramas. And this week on uh, The Extraordinary Attorney Woo, which is my favorite Korean drama of the week, one of the characters busts out what looks like a really thick lip balm and rubs it all over her face and neck. <laughs> it's a face balm. And I found a vegan version of it online. I added it to the Korean vegan storefront. You can check it out in the show link below. New recipe alert. It's not like a new recipe recipe, but I wanted to share how I made my fruit salad. I'm sticking to a no sugar added regimen these days. And this fruit salad was so good. Here are my secrets to a kickin' fruit salad a healthy squeeze of grapefruit juice for tartness and a pinch of gochugaru, which is Korean pepper powder for heat. Otherwise, I included peaches, strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, grapefruit, and grapes in my fruit salad. And it was so good. I actually made some for some friends who came over the other day. There was like six of us sitting at my kitchen table and it was gone like that. It was so good. Such a refreshing reminder that you really don't need sugar for an incredibly satisfying dessert. Speaking of dessert, this is your weekly reminder that yes, all of these recipes that I'm talking about or picturing or featuring on my TikTok videos, on my YouTube shorts, or in my Instagram reels, they're all in a wonderful little catalog that you could download right onto your phone. It's called the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. It's an app that you put on your phone and when you open it, wow, you get 2,000 plus plant-based recipes, whether you want breakfast, lunch, dinner, or a snack, they're all there for your perusal for about what it costs to get a latte per week. And I drink a lot more than one latte per week. I should even include a latte recipe in there. Actually, I think there are a bunch of latte recipes in there. Any hoot, if you want instant access to thousands of plant-based recipes that I am adding to basically every single week, like this fruit salad, as well as the garlic pasta that I showed you all on my TikTok the other day, go ahead and hit the link in the show notes below for the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. Parting thoughts. I still can't believe it. Even when I say it out loud, 
that I've been running now for nine years. Keep in mind, I am the same girl who had a panic attack, fainted, and had to go to the ER the first time I learned we would have to run 20 minutes in a row in gym class. And somehow, I've transformed into a person who can't imagine life without running. I'm not fast. My best marathon is 4.15.22, Indie Monumental. But if anyone told me when I set out to run my four mile quote long run back in March of 2014, that one day I would cross the finish line of not one, but five marathons, I would have replied, wait, how long is a marathon? I knew nothing about running other than what the human body is born knowing. You do it when someone is chasing you. Since then, as I continue to chip away towards my goals, I struggle with a lot of self-doubt, particularly after a rather disappointing finish to my last marathon. I keep hearing, you just don't have a runner's body, and wonder whose voice that might be. Is it the voice of my nameless critics who sneer at my Strava stats? Is it all the glossy magazines that feature women who look nothing like me as their long and skinny legs glide past a blue and yellow finish line? Is it the voice of my teammates, the ones I call the varsity squad who float past me with a gracious smile, their lean, lithe bodies arching effortlessly past my own huffing and puffing form? Is it the voice of my husband, who looks like he's been carved out of marble even after downing three pints of Ben and Jerry's and considers a 7.30 mile slow? No, I know whose voice it is. I'm not stupid. Some humans are better equipped to run fast, run long, or just run. Just like some bodies are better at singing arias with an E over high C. I studied vocal performance for five years and managed that feat only a handful of times. But I have zero aspirations of becoming a professional runner, just as I no longer harbor any dreams of a career in singing. My legs are very short, bowed, and top-heavy. My ankles are weak, and prone to rolling, especially when loose acorns are on the prowl. I have what some may call a voluptuous body, TNA. In my entire life, I have never been thin. That's another story. I think of all the thousands of miles I've logged since my inaugural 0.75 mile run in 2013. And despite the hundreds of thousands of times my foot has pounded on that pavement, the road has never once chastised me for being too heavy. The road has never criticized me for how my thighs graze with each step. The road has never laughed at how my legs pump instead of stride. The road has never given me side eye for wearing the wrong running shorts or sports bra. The road has never judged me for the number of times I've been passed or stopped to walk. The road didn't try to shame me when I finished my last marathon in nearly six hours. The road didn't ignore me when I came back after taking a six-month break to recover from injuries. The road didn't all of a sudden pretend it didn't know me when my comfortable pace went from 10-minute miles to 13-minute miles. The road has never demanded I run slower or faster or longer or shorter. The road has never questioned my motives, my determination, or my will. I ran 10 miles this morning, alone. I could hear the thudding of my footsteps 
keeping a pace with the thudding of my heart. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you subscribed and if you shared this episode or any other episode that you found particularly inspiring with your friends, your family, your loved ones, and even your colleagues. Until next week, I hope you have a wonderful and lovely day. Mm-hmm.